This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth is a daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We take the news seriously, but not ourselves. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. On today's show, COVID vaccine booster shots for teenagers soon available. Is California heading for yet another winter surge of COVID infections? And Vice President Kamala Harris is a historic tiebreaker. Donald Trump going to be subpoenaed by New York's Attorney General to testify in a civil fraud investigation. Will he actually deliver any testimony? Old-fashioned soda shops are making a comeback. And Neil Young made new music during the COVID lockdowns. We'll talk with longtime guitarist and member of the band Crazy Horse, Nils Lofgren, about what's to expect. I know we're getting ahead of our own stories, but the soda shop thing is really interesting. There's stores that you go into and you can just sit down and drink soda. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, is that it? Yeah, it's probably... There's like 64 flavors. It's great. Probably sponsored by like the American Dental Association (laughs) or something like that. Toothbrushes on the way out. (laughs) We start, though, with COVID booster shots in teenagers. Dr. Ann Falsey is a professor of infectious diseases and co-director of the University of Rochester Medical Center's Vaccine and Treatment Evaluation Unit. Uh, Doctor, thanks for being with us. So well, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about uh, booster shots for teens. Uh, I, I suspect you're going to agree that it is a good idea, but I saw a poll this morning that said something in the order of 30% of parents are reluctant to have their kids get shots. Well, I, you know, I think things change by the day and people are continually assessing risk versus benefit. And with the um, appearance of Omicron, uh, you know, things are a bit different. So I think if they get re-polled after Omicron makes its appearance, uh, they may change. Is there actually separate data for 16 and 17-year-olds? Or are they just kind of saying, you know what, we're already recommending it for 18-year-olds. And as you move into adulthood, there's not that much difference. So we might as well, because if it's for 18 plus, then why isn't it for 16 plus? Right. And, and the boosters uh, were really studied in 18 plus, uh, but you know the difference between a 16 year old and a 18 year old is really not significant. Okay, so uh, and, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, uh, you know, and and the original application Pfizer made was for 16 and up. So for those parents who are reluctant and they say, well, look, you know, I was kind of reluctant to have. Uh, my teenagers get the shots to begin with, and I kind of caved and I let them do that. But now you're asking me to to say okay to yet a third shot. You would tell them what? Oh, I would tell them this is not unique. Uh, you know, hepatitis B, which is a terrific vaccine, does require three shots. So, you know, we learn as we go. People get frustrated that we keep changing the story, but they have to realize this is a new disease. And the situation keeps changing. And so what we've learned so far about Delta and Omicron um, is that more is better, to keep it simple. So the more antibody you have, the more well-protected you are. And with the new variant, because it seems to be a little less susceptible to antibody generated from the original vaccine, um, there's now some data that if you boost, uh, you do much better. So nobody wants to get sick with it for one, and nobody wants to spread it around to other people that you love. 
if we could go back and rewrite things, would you say third dose in a three-shot series instead of the word booster? I, no, I mean, I don't think I'd go back and say that's what we should have done because we didn't know. I mean, there was just no way to predict. And, you know, it's a complicated situation and it's not just waning immunity and the need for a third shot. It's that um, the variants keep changing and our understanding of whether or not you can boost immunity with the original vaccine and cover the variants or you need a specific variant vaccine. Again, we're, we're learning as we go. But, you know, sort of an extension of Mike's uh, question, uh, Dr. Fauci was asked yesterday whether or not going forward uh, we shouldn't just characterize these shots, the, the Pfizer and Moderna ones anyway, as three-dose vaccines. And his response was along the lines of, you know, well, we'll see when we get there. But it seems like in the real world, certainly in, in countries like the U.S. and in Western Europe, De facto, it is the de facto course of action, right? It's three shots. So why not just change it and say it's a three-shot deal? Well, probably because if you changed it and said, well, it's three shots, then if it turns out you need a, a booster, people will be angry. Well, you said it was three shots. Now you're saying it's four. I think there has to be an acceptance that we are gathering more data and learning as we go. It is possible that with the three shots that will boost immunity enough that it will be more durable. But we don't know that yet and we may have to adjust in the future. So I, I feel like you know the health authorities aren't trying to be wishy-washy, but if you're too dogmatic, then you're held up to like, well, you said the wrong thing. Um, I think at this moment in time with Delta surging all around, it's winter, people are coming in. I think there's pretty clear cut evidence now that antibody does decrease over time, makes you more susceptible. And that not only that, but having a booster actually doesn't just increase your antibody, it protects you better, particularly the data that's coming out of Israel, that they're proving that, you know, it's not just an antibody thing, it really does protect you. So, you know, we, we like to see at least some data before making recommendations. Dr. Ann Falsey, Professor of Infectious Diseases, Co-Director, University of Rochester Medical Center's Vaccine and Treatment Evaluation Unit. So when we uh, come back, our, we in California, when it comes to COVID, in for another rough ride in the winter? We'll find out. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, Nils Lofgren, uh, Neil Young collaborator, E Street Band with Bruce, comes to the show to preview new music coming out from Neil. Uh, before that, former President Trump subpoenaed to testify in a civil fraud case, but will he ever actually sit in that witness chair? Right now, though, it could be just a bump of COVID infections from the Thanksgiving holiday when most of us gathered together again, but it could be a sign of something far more ominous. Rising cases in California over the last two weeks could be foreshadowing yet another winter COVID surge. With us now is Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, who's an epidemiologist, clinical professor of preventative medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So what do you think? Uh, too soon probably to, to call it, but are you concerned that we're in for, I've lost track of how many waves, what would this be for <laughs> California, five? 
Well, uh, for California, it would essentially be an official way for. But anyway, um, we have seen, you know, an uptick in the number of cases. Uh, it's been a slight uptick in the number of, of, of hospitalizations. But remember, hospitalizations are what we call a lagging indicator. Hospitalizations wouldn't rise uh, from an increase of cases for about one to two weeks after. However, um, because we have a high level of the population that is uh, vaccinated in Los Angeles, and we also have um, a, a high level of population that had prior infection uh, last year, we actually have a fair amount of what I call community immunity. And while that community immunity may not you know, protect us from a new infection, because we know the immunity does wane over time and loses its ability to prevent infection, the immunity is still very strong at preventing serious disease, hospitalization, or death. Yeah, I was going to say, your concern versus your level of previous expectation for something like this happening, because we always kind of did expect a winter surge uh, because of Delta, even before we started talking about Omicron. Correct. So, you know, I think we uh, we have treatments available now. So we have monoclonal antibodies, uh, which the, the county now has um, centers where people can go online and look if they're eligible and get free treatment with monoclonal antibodies in L.A. County. Um, also, we're expecting new treatments from uh, Merck and Pfizer to come out soon. So I think we're actually in a different phase of this epidemic where we need to worry less about the number and case counts of infections and focus more on early treatment and preventing hospitalizations and deaths. Are we starting to get any sort of a picture on how well booster shots are working in California? Well, uh, not specifically in California, but the Israelis have shown, you know, that the booster shots, the people who got three shots versus two shots had a reduced risk of infection, a reduced risk of hospitalization and death in the short term. But, you know, what we know is that you get your shots, you get a booster shot, your antibodies go up and then your antibodies are going to go down. It's really the long term protection that we should be uh, concerned about and the immunity from uh of vaccination series with or without a booster and a immunity from prior infection, both are very strong against the serious uh, consequences. And that was nicely shown actually in a paper that came out last week in the New England Journal of Medicine, where in Qatar, they looked at over 300,000 uh, people with prior infection. They had about 1,300 people who got repeat infection and only four were classified as severe. So if people get a breakthrough infection, we can expect that it's going to be uh, not very severe. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist, clinical professor, preventative medicine, USC Keck School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. When we come back, Vice President Kamala Harris making history just not the type of history she probably expected to make. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman and Mike Simpson. You know uh, who's going to be talking with us a little bit later in the show? Uh, Niels Lofgren, uh, who plays guitar and writes music for Neil Young uh, and Bruce Springsteen. So he's not your sort of average musician. <laughs> he's going to come to In-Depth to talk about Neil Young's new uh, album. It comes out tomorrow, in fact. And before that, we are going to uh, take a trip to an old-fashioned soda shop they are making a comeback. 
Right now, though, the vice president, Kamala Harris, is a record breaker in her role as president of the Senate as she's now cast her 14th and 15th tie-breaking votes, uh, the most tiebreakers cast in modern Senate history. Molly Reynolds, senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Molly, thanks. So is this um, fun trivia or is this, wow, look how slim the margins are, how divided we are? Maybe it's both. I'd say it's, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. And I'd say it's all of the above. Um, it's certainly a piece of fun trivia for those of us who uh, who follow Congress. Um, but fundamentally, it is a reflection of both just how narrow the margin is in the Senate this year, 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. Um, that gives the vice president um, a lot of responsibility and, and power to break um, certain tie votes. And then it also does reflect just the, the levels of partisanship that we see in the contemporary Senate, the need for the vice president to come in and break some ties because there are no members of, um, in this case, the Republican Party who are willing to vote um, with the with the Democrats does tell us something about our politics. So the fact that she's had to exercise her tie-breaking vote so often is not really a surprise, right? No, and um, there are a couple additional reasons for that. One is that um, we are in the first year of a new presidential administration. Uh, A lot of what the Senate is doing this year, as in many years, is voting on nominations, new nominees to to executive branch positions under President Biden. And since 2013, uh, those nominations have not been subject to a filibuster. They haven't needed the 60 votes that so much else in the Senate does need to get done. So that's created a little bit of a a perfect storm for the the vice president to be called on frequently to, to break these ties. Is it nominees that aren't palatable enough for the other side being put up for positions or is it both sides just looking at the other nominee and saying, you know what, I'm not going to vote for them. They're the other party. Who cares? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, I'd say. I mean, it really depends um, on the nomination. Uh, certainly, we have seen, I think, more nominees who in the past would have maybe gotten some votes from members of the other party who aren't uh, getting those votes, who are um, having to be confirmed on a strict party line basis with the tie-breaking vote from the vice president um, uh, because of just the levels of, of partisanship that we um, that we see in the Senate today. Do we know who the runner-up is after Kamala Harris? Um, so uh, the person, uh, uh, so you mentioned that she did 14 and 15. To get to number 14, um, she actually passed Mike Pence, who had uh, who had done it 13 huh. times over the course of his um, his vice presidency. And I think that's also telling um, that, you know, we... Uh, in, in the current moment, um, it is it can be very difficult to get um, members of the other party to go along uh, with what the majority party of the Senate wants. Yes. And we have these very slim majorities. So she's going at a pretty good clip. Um, is she on track to like break the all time record? And who's that? That must be like a long time ago. Um, the uh, the all time record um, is, uh, I believe, John C. Calhoun. Oh, yes, um, of course. So uh, shame on me for not looking, knowing. We're, yeah. looking at the, <laughs> we're looking at the 19th century here. Um, it may be it may be the case. Um, she has, again, certainly racked up a really large number for this um, this first year of um, of a of a presidency. And, and at the time when when John C. Calhoun was doing this, was it for similar reasons in, in terms of the composition of the Congress or the Senate? Yes. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not a historian, so I don't know too much about the circumstances um, that Calhoun faced. But one thing I will point out is that, you know, 
in previous um, Senates where um, we might have seen more bipartisanship, um, more cooperation um, across party lines. Um, that particularly in other parts of the 20th century, that's part of why um, we sort of have gone a long time without um, having someone kind of rack up this number of, of tie-breaking votes in a single year. Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies, the Brookings Institution. How much do you want to bet that this was the first time that John, the name John C. Calhoun ever came out of this yeah, radio station. Not often mentioned. No, no. It's, it's like first for this program. Lost, yeah. Yes, lost to, to history. If that was on your bingo card today. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, a little bit later, we're going to be talking about soda, soda pop. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. New York's attorney general has been looking into fraud allegations against former President Donald Trump for several months now. She's ready to talk with Trump himself. Attorney General Letitia James issuing a subpoena to the former president. The aim of having him give testimony over fraud allegations tied to the Trump organization and then real estate Valuations. Yeah, but Trump and his allies, they have become absolute masters of dodging and delaying when it comes to giving testimony, handing over documents, or taking part in any number of investigations. Renato Mariotti is an attorney in private practice, legal analyst, host of the On Topic podcast, an attorney in private practice. He's also a former federal prosecutor. Thanks for being back with us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So as I mentioned, uh, and as Mike uh, mentioned, uh, you know, Trump and, and uh, the entire, it seems, Trump organization are pretty masterful at, at sort of running the clock, keeping things going, making legal challenges. We're talking now about a civil case as opposed to the criminal investigation that's ongoing involving the Manhattan uh, district attorney. Is there more potential jeopardy for the former president by trying to dodge the civil actions? So there would be if a judge forced him to be seated here. In other words, in a criminal case, you you have the absolute right not to speak, not to uh, potentially incriminate you. As I think we all know, you could take the fifth. In a civil case, it can be held against you if you take the fifth. But because this puts the person in a position where they have to choose if there's a criminal case ongoing, they have to choose between their, you know, whether or not to exercise their constitutional right, you know, or and hurt themselves in the criminal matter or hurt themselves in the civil matter. Judges routinely do not force people in Trump's position where there's criminal matters ongoing and civil matters to testify in a civil case. So in other words, he can say because these overlap and I'd be in danger. I, I, I can't go. I shouldn't be able to go. And the judge might say, OK, you don't have to go. We'll wait till the other guys maybe get started more on theirs. That's right. Now, he could be deposed in a civil case or, uh, where there's there's it has nothing to do with a criminal matter. Let's say he didn't pay his bills or you, you have some dispute with him. But if it's any, you know, it, she's investigating him on matters that are very similar and overlap with the matters that the Manhattan D.A. is investigating. And I expect his lawyers are going to do whatever they can to make sure that the judge uh, gi- gives them a reprieve from his testimony here. Okay, so now 
think like a a the prosecutor you were, and and I hope that's not offensive, but but think <laughs> no, not at all. Okay, think like the prosecutor you were. Put yourself in the in the mindset of the New York State Attorney General. Presumably, she knows all of this. What we've just talked about. Why is she doing this then? Well. It depends how cynical you are. On one hand, she just I'm pretty withdrew. cynical, so go ahead. <laughs> oh, she just withdrew from the governor's race today. And I think part of her stated reason is that she's going after the Trump organization. She's got important investigations to work on. And so this, I think, furthers that narrative. Okay? That's, that's a, a more cynical way. That's okay. a non-legal way. Uh, that, that I imagine some might think that. From a purely legal perspective, uh, the reason you do these things is First of all, to make it clear that you are pursuing this matter so that as soon as the criminal liability is resolved, you can tell the judge, we've been seeking his testimony for months, years, whatever. Okay, we've been patient. We're ready to go. I think it puts that pressure on. It also, I think, does put some pressure on the other side because it makes clear to them that you're ready to move forward and that they have this awaiting them uh, whenever they figure out the criminal uh, liability. His lawyers are always saying this is politically motivated. Had she still been running for governor as a Democrat, could they have pointed to that and said, see, this is what we mean. She's going after him so she can get the next job. For sure. I actually think they're going to make that argument regardless because she ran for attorney general in part, I think, or at least made statements during the campaign about this. I think that's always something that, that litigants are going to bring up when they're going up against an elected official, like in this case, an attorney general. Renato Mariotti, attorney in private practice, legal analyst. He's got the On Topic podcast and uh, is a former federal prosecutor. When we come back, the 1950s are making a comeback in America. <laughs> Do we want it to come back? Know, really? It seems so nice in all the pictures. And yeah. Is that the, the nostalgia? The days you know? of Ozzie and Harriet. You know, do you even know who Ozzie and Harriet were? I mean, were? I've heard of them. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Who were they? Bring them back. <laughs> and Soda Fountains, too. <laughs> when we come back. <laughs> this is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. You know, I mentioned this before, that uh, the average American, ready for this if you haven't heard this, drinks 37 gallons of soda pop per person. That's a lot. Yeah, and within recent years, soda shops, chains, have been opening up all across the country in states like uh, uh, Utah, Texas, South Carolina, Oklahoma. One of them is Swig, employs 700 people. They hope to open 10 to 15 shops a year in the next couple of years. Nicole Tanner, owner and founder of Swig. Nicole, thanks for being here. So I walk into one of your stores in one of these spots. What do I see? Oh, goodness. First of all, you see happy, smiling people that are excited to take your order. <laughs> no, that's what we pride ourselves on is honestly like great customer service with fast moving lines. Um, we are remote. Our majority of our stores are drive through, though, drive through shops. So a lot of them, we only have two or three that are you can walk in because of the pandemic. We closed all of our indoor lobbies and we are just strictly drive through right now. So as you drive through in your car, you will see a happy smiling face and um, you'll see a menu with lots of colorful, yummy beverages from soda to sparkling water to energy drinks. We really have a drink for everybody in the car. We have bobas. So just really 
anybody in the car. Now, no, no food, just just soda. We do have cookies and oh. pretzel bites. Okay, so it's that's all of, you need. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. So it's kind of like your it's kind of like your your go to snack for in the middle of the day um, or a caffeine pick me up. And um, it's we we did that purposely though because we don't ever want to have a slow line with somebody ordering like a burger and fries. It was more of like you just want to get a good drink whether that be sparkling water or caffeine soda whatever and you want to get it out in and out fast almost like a chick-fil-a line sure so we ourselves in. now am i right that did this start this whole sort of renaissance of soda shops in in utah and, and didn't it have something to do with the fact that there are a lot of mormons in utah uh, why would that be a connection well, honestly, I don't think it's a connection because I lived in Colorado before uh, we moved to Utah 13 years ago, and we would go to Sonic all of the time to get our caffeine fix and um, or just to get our treat for the day. And so then we moved to Southern Utah and St. George, and we were like, why does this not exist out there where it is just like drive through drinks, whether that be caffeine or not. And we're like, we would appreciate that. So we opened up the first of this market. We believe we created the market 11 and a half years ago and um, in St. George. And so honestly, I don't think it has to do with the Mormon or the LDS community. I think that St. George is a place. Well, but Mormons Mormons don't don't drink coffee. Uh, yeah, coffee, no, no right? hot caffeine. No hot caffeine. So they caffeine, would have right? to drink cold caffeine. That would right, be the idea, right? right? Yeah. So For so sure. For sure. And so it may have a correlation, but honestly, we just opened up a store, two stores in Oklahoma where it is not predominantly LDS based, and they're in our top five stores already. We just opened them up in October. So a lot of them have never been to Utah when I was taking orders and they didn't even know what Swig was. And they're going crazy over a drink. So uh, who knows? Yeah. We're going into Texas next year. We just opened one in Idaho last week. Going crazy. Give me some of the, the combos because I can add stuff. And it's not just like, okay, I want a Dr. Pepper. What can I put in it? Oh, yes. In fact, if people come through and just order, okay, I just want a Dr. Pepper. I'm like, okay, what do you <laughs> You're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Look at your I, options. I, you're, you're a purist and I love it. That's great. But what we do at Swig 2 is we take your favorite drink and we put a special twist on it. So with a lime or a lemon or coconut, we have a trademark term called dirty um, that is coconut. So we can put coconut in any of your drinks. We have a drink called the Dirty Dr. Pepper, and that is a coconut Dr. Pepper. Super delicious. But we also get one. Well, mine is the founder. I'm the founder of Swig. And what I get every day is a Diet Coke with sugar-free coconut syrup, fresh lime, and coconut cream. So, so good. So do you feature then mostly brand names or depending on where the stores are, is it kind of like, like craft beers? Uh, do you have sort of locally produced brands as well? Like the names for our drinks, is that what you mean? No, no, the actual soda itself. Oh, it is basically like Coke and Pepsi products. So whatever um, Coke and Pepsi has to offer, then we'll offer. So we have Mountain Dew, Sprite, uh, Root Beer, Ginger Ale, Diet Coke, Coke, um, ba your basic Pepsi and Coke drinks is what we have. And then we have all different kinds of flavor add-ins from purees, fruits, fruits, purees, to syrups, to creams, to fresh fruit to put in. I am on the menu right now. The Happy Camper yeah. is root beer, toasted marshmallow, and half and half. Yeah. We have the Unlucky Ducky, which is Sprite, lemonade, strawberry, and then what goes on top of the Unlucky a Ducky? Shark. A That's gummy shark. Ducky. <laughs> it's a red drink. Uh -huh. So, so are, are all of your employees on like a sugar high all the time? 
<laughs> they do get a 16 ounce free soda when they work. So maybe that, that's, <laughs> that's why they're so day. happy. But a lot of ours, like the drink I get is sugar free. So ah, it doesn't okay. have any sugar. A lot of them, they don't, they don't like the sugar. You so. mentioned Sonic earlier. Is that because the ice cubes? Because I see the little circle ice. ice cubes. In yes, those. that is exactly it. Uh, it's the good crushed pebble ice that I think makes a fountain drink or any kind of drink the best drink out there. So you ticked off a number of states where you're uh, you're planning and opening stores right about here in California. You know, we've had several franchise requests for California over the years. We are not a franchise yet. We hope to be soon. We just didn't want to franchise until we really knew that each store would do as well as the original store. We just opened store number 37 in Idaho, like I said last week. So I think California totally needs some swigs down there. Um, and, and look for us, hopefully in the next year or two, we can get some open down there. And the idea being instead of the like mid-afternoon coffee run or something that it's it's this. And is that how people kind of use yeah, your stores? Totally. It, it, you know, it's kind of like maybe even like a Dutch Bros with the energy drinks. Um, and so energy drinks or sparkling water, just kind of like a pick me up. Honestly, swig is like the best part of people's day. A lot of times they're like, I don't even drink soda, but I'm coming for like our fruit water. If you see that on the menu, it's um, frozen strawberries and mangoes and coconut and vanilla syrup and just water. And we sell a ton of that. We have one that's called the strawberry breeze, which is like a Starbucks pink, pink drink. And so delicious. So it's just their drink fix and they can come. We actually open it at 7.30 in the morning and people come, there's a line at 7.30 in the morning. So people come just to get any kind of drink, um, whether it be caffeinated or not, we are just their drink place. Um, or it's just their happy place. We call it happiness in a cup. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nicole Tanner, owner and founder of Swig, yeah. looking to expand. Somebody open one. Everybody check your glucose levels. <laughs> So fun. I love I love doing that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll have more in depth on the way. Another half an hour. This is KNX In-Depth, daily program that goes beyond the headlines to bring you a fresh take on the most interesting stories of the day. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Niels Lofgren has had the kind of career a lot of musicians dream of. Not long after turning pro, he joined Neil Young's band for the acclaimed platinum album After the Gold Rush, also known as a member of the E Street Band and even parts of Ringo Starr's All-Star Band. Well, tomorrow, Niels, along with Neil Young and the rest of Crazy Horse, will be releasing their latest uh, project, Barn, recorded in an off-grid farm in the Rockies. The album also comes with a stunning film directed by uh, Hollywood superstar Daryl Hannah. Here to talk about the record as well as uh, an impressive career spanning more than 50 years, Nils Lofgren. Thanks for being uh, with us. So let me ask you, you know, often you hear bands talking about, gee, it'd be really good to get the old band back together again. Uh, here's a case where the old band is getting back together again. Well, it was great because, of course, uh, in the pandemic, I'd stayed in touch with Neil, Ralphie, and Billy, but the overriding uh, pandemic line was, hey, might be a year and a half before we get to tour or sing or play. Last year, April 29th, we had a fabulous four or five month tour plan starting in uh, Chicago where I was originally born. And I couldn't have been happier to get out on the road and really, you know, get 10, 20 shows under our belt because everything changes and gets better when you're on the road in front of an audience, especially for a band like Crazy Horse. 
So uh, that all went away. And uh, Neil had called early in the year. And, you know, of course, we lamented the state of the pandemic and the lockdowns and all that. But he said, look, I've got, you know, four songs. I'm just about got ready. And rather than wait a year and a half for some mythical tour that we don't even know will happen, I'm thinking about getting us together for a, a week or two just to, you know, be friends with music, with uh, instruments on and maybe record, you know, try to record a few songs. And then maybe we could do that two or three times through the year in different locations and work on trying to get a record together. So that's how it started. Of course, we were early on. We had vaccines, masks, et cetera, testing. But he decided uh, with a small crew and, you know, the band just to at least go after a handful of songs. And of course, once we got there, it's beautiful setting in the Rockies, as you can see by the photos, four songs led to six, led to seven, <laughs> to eight, to nine. And then all of a sudden, you know, with nine songs, uh, he was like, damn, if I, if I can get a song written tonight, uh, maybe we'll record it tomorrow and have an album. I was just happy to get the hell out of the house and do something musically, <laughs> you know, and uh, be a professional musician again with your old friends. You know, we once had a, uh, a novelist on the show during the pandemic who mentioned that the pandemic did have an impact on his writing, on, on his choice of material, on just his whole mood on, on how to write. And I'm curious if you sense a, a change in the way, uh, just the composition, because of the pandemic, because of the, the stresses, because of the situation the entire world finds itself in. Well, um, you know, speaking for myself, uh, the first year I was scared, depressed, had the blues. All I did was play, if I was lucky, play half an hour of blues guitar to Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Howlin' Wolf, uh, you know, the blues greats. And um, that's all I did, man. I was spraying mail down with, went before the vaccine, letting it bake in the sun, wearing gloves, Gargling with this all this stuff we thought we had to do, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. We were just, me and my wife were just trying not to get COVID. I didn't really do much except, you know, I was like the houseboy and I'd run errands, do what I could. But we were, you know, with even with the now that we have the vaccine and all that, we're triple vaxxed and we're very careful and wear masks, even though we're living in a, a Phoenix, Scottsdale area where, you know, there's tens of thousands of people on the street, not a mask in sight. Uh, this year I started writing myself again. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's affected everyone differently. I have some friends like, man, I can't believe it. I feel guilty. I'm in the best shape of my life. I've written four albums. They're all recorded and in the can. And I like, I don't know. I have so much free time. I'm like, I've never, I never realized being unemployed, I'd be so busy. But, you know, Amy and I are in the business of staying alive. And, um, you know, wrestling with the blues that come with, you know, not only the, the virus, but a, a country so lost. It doesn't even know how to handle it. And so uh, musically, I'm getting back to recording, making record, and I couldn't be happier that uh, Barnes coming out tomorrow. Nils Lofgren is with us. More on the new records. Uh, Crazy Horse, Neil Young, Barn, uh, in just a few minutes, right here on In-Depth. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. We're still with guitarist Nils Lofgren, who has um, played with a lot of people over the course of his 50-plus-year career. Um, Springsteen, Neil Young, we've talked about those. We're going to continue to talk about them. Uh, Ringo Starr, Robert Plant, David Crosby, Willie Nelson, Jerry Lee Lewis. 
it's uh, been a pretty impressive run. Mills Lofgren stays with us on In-Depth, discussing his career and his part on Barn, the latest project from Neil Young and Crazy Horse that is released, by the way, tomorrow. So I got to ask you, because it's called Barn, and it was actually recorded in a barn. Yeah, so high up in the Rockies, you drive for miles in the middle of nowhere, and then you go down a long decline, and all of a sudden there's this drafty, unsealed, you know, 150-year-old barn in the middle of nowhere, big, heavy logs, beautiful, but not sealed, you know, drafty, cold at night. You walk in, and at one end is an entire stage, like you're in a nightclub. Uh, Your amps, everything's set up, facing out, if you will, to the audience or the crew, a limited crew. Uh, There's a PA halfway out of the barn aimed at you. So we would literally, as we were learning songs, we were recording, but from a stage, like a nightclub stage, but in a funky old barn, ancient. And, um, you know, one of my favorite things, uh, the entire album, we never once put on a set of headphones. And a couple of times you hear us singing, we just gathered around Neil's mic, mixed ourselves, had the playback in the, the barn PA, very low level, of course, so you could get our voices over it. And it was just a very earthy, raw, you know, organic thing that uh, we just kept getting excited and inspired. And, you know, it's one thing to sit around and swap stories with friends of 53 years. I mean, it's, it's unusual. It's certainly as old a musical family as I have. And, uh, but then, you know, to get up after, you know, half hour, we have a sandwich, tell some stories, laugh, cry, whatever. We were always, you know, Elliot Roberts' picture was on the guitar of vaults and we always had David Briggs on our mind and Ben Keith and some of our heroes and dear friends that we've lost. But to get up and go up and play for two hours, four or five times through the day was an extraordinary gift, especially in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, initially when we showed up, we had no idea it was going to lead to a finished album. You know, you talk about uh, friendships that span half a century. And of course, the industry that you're in has has changed greatly in in 50 plus years. Uh, Speak to to that, if you can. Uh, What impact has that had on what you do? Well, you know, I think uh, all of us, Uh, I won't speak for Neil, but it's a generalization that all musicians at this point, after you've been around this long, you know, you tell stories about, you know, the time you were, you know, stupid young kid in the studio and you spent three weeks getting the Tom Tom sound or, you know, you spent all this time working on one little thing and obsessing on it and losing sight of the big picture. Then you get into the digital area where uh, even people, you know, like Crazy Horse or or the E Street Band, or some of the old guard learn that there's some advantage to it. Like, hey, you know, uh, you can fly things in. Like if if you sang a line that was just amazing with the emotional content from another take, well, now you can take it and place it in a song. And of course, people have taken that to the extreme of making albums that are very machine-based, that lose a lot of the heart and soul. The bands I work with don't do that, but you take advantage of technology and you use it as you see fit. Uh, At the same time, though, in this setting, specifically with Barn, you have people, I I think we were about the last generation in the 60s that grew up with no internet, no digital, no MTV, no video. The only game in town was learn how to play in front of people. So the analog recording back then was very 
you know, you didn't take a good harmony part and, and fly it in to four different spots. So it's identical just because it's in pitch. You sang it four different times. Or even better, you sang while you were playing live, which was the Tonight's Tonight album. Everything was, you know, we were warned that when Neil got the vocal, we were done, wouldn't change a note because it was an anti-production record. So stay down in it. And just like this record, Neil didn't even want us learning the songs too well. So me and Ralphie, Ben Keith, Billy Talbot on bass, we'd be singing harmonies to a song we didn't even know that well while we were playing and recording. And it was quite amazing. But I've come to really love that about Neil because it kind of takes the pressure off of the whole recording and all the tools available and gets back to, to something that a lot of bands don't grow up knowing how to do anymore, which is just play live, trust your instincts and not worry about it. It's funny because, you know, some bands like, okay, did you, you got your part straight? And, you know, and Neil's, Neil's line is, you know, I don't even want you to know the song well enough to have a part. <laughs> just, just, just come along for the feel. ride. Yeah. Just play what you feel and let the part change as we go, not knowing what the hell it's going to be. Is there something about him, Neil, that we on the outside don't know or have wrong? What do you think that is? I think in general, you know, Neil's portrayed as, as kind of an intense, um, dark character sometimes. I mean, if you really pay attention and look at all the history that's now on video, I think you realize that's really not true. He's got a great sense of humor. He's smart as hell. And, and, and he's got an enormous common sense. And, you know, as intense as it is, you know, even with, with a live recording like Barn, he's very always been open. First song, Song of the Seasons. You know, I'm sitting there eyeing the piano like, man, I'd love to play that. But the way this song, the vibe is maybe, and, you know, Neil said, yeah, let's start with the accordion. Well, the accordion worked out. Hmm. And even, um, you know, a lot of studio stuff, you put an accordionist in a little booth, you isolate them, you put up all these beautiful, expensive mics to get this great sound. But that wasn't this record. So I had a couple of mics put on the accordion so I could run it through the PA, stand there right in the middle of it all with the drums and Neil leaking into the accordion mics, but stand up, walk around and play with the band live. And that's the accordion you hear. So that's great. it's all just um, adapting to, you know, the spirit of the band and the band leader. And personally, because I like, look, you look at some of the records Neil's made, his first solo album, uh, the Crosby Stills National Young Records, the Buffalo Spring Records, extremely beautiful production that enhanced the emotional content. It didn't get in the way of anything, but that's that type of very well put together, you know, production. This is the antithesis of that. And, you know, I've been reveling in it for 50 years plus and grateful we had another chapter. So now that things are hopefully getting better or soon will, let's uh, maybe we'll jump into springtime and our, our crystal ball. What's next? You think Crazy Horse is going out? Is E Street Band going out? Bo both Neil and Bruce have spoken to wanting, wanting to play. Uh, Neil's been very clear that um, he wants to wait until everything's safe. And I think we're a long way from that. And he does too at the moment. At least he mentioned that in a recent interview. Now, everything can change, of course. Uh, getting out to play safely, when's that going to happen? I don't know. I know, you know, Bruce has talked about getting out next year if it's safe. But, you know, I've done this for 53 years professionally. And until I can go buy a ticket, and a lot of times if I'm in a band and they just put tickets, I'd say, I'll just buy one to make sure it's real. But, um, yeah, until you can buy a ticket, th these are great ideas that, that aren't that whose time has not come yet.
Well, when it happens, we'll come out and see you, all right? Yeah, I'll be there, too. And Nils Glofgren from uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse. The album is Barn. It's out tomorrow. And uh, that's it for us today. We'll yeah. be back tomorrow, too, I at wanna, 1 p.m. Want to find one of those soda stores. <laughs> Here we go. Charles isn't with us. He's in Utah. Yeah.